Father God, we confess our need of you. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Touch our hearts, enlighten us, encourage us, rebuke us where we need it. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name. Good morning. It's wonderful to be back with you. It's always a, a joy to be at Trinity. Uh, and you're always a great congregation to speak to. So I'm really glad to be here. Um, our Gospel reading started with John the Baptist addressing the crowd as a brood of vipers. And it concludes with Luke's editorial remark, and with many such words, John preached the good news. And one might be forgiven for thinking that John the Baptist needed a good spin doctor and that Luke could have done with a, a wilier editor. Um, it isn't a passage that, that you see framed and put all over the mantelpieces very much. You don't see it in the Christmas cards. Um, it doesn't quite fit that category, does it? It's one of those passages that many of us get to and we think, well, we'll skip over this bit and get on to the good bits. All this, you know, wheat and chaff and, and burning things up and uh, axe laid at the root of the trees. And actually that tells us something about ourselves. Because the people to whom John was speaking and the people to whom Luke was writing and uh, who were reading this recognise the good news. Because they were people who were weary of the evils that were going on in the world. They were very aware that people who had no respect for God were in control of what was God's world. And God had made all these promises and they weren't seeing it happen. And at last, God was beginning to do something. And that's what John was announcing, that God was going to step in. He was not going to allow things to just carry on as they were. They were glad that God was going to act. We have a tradition of treating judgment and salvation as opposites. Actually, in Bible times, they never were. A judge is a person who makes things right. That's what the judge's job was. It was to make things right, and especially to save the innocent, to save the oppressed, to deliver the person that was being mistreated. And you go back to the book of Judges, a whole book called the Book of Judges, and none of them sit around with silly wigs and do what we think judges do. Um, they, were, they were rescuers, they were deliverers who stepped in and set things straight for their people. And you don't find them sitting in court at all because being a judge and being a saviour was the same thing. You go through the Book of Psalms and you'll find within one couplet, one pair of lines, God as judge, God as saviour, rejoicing in his judgment and his salvation. We have a tradition of separating the two out a long way. In biblical thinking, the two are tied really close together. This is an Advent season, and this reading is chosen to be part of Advent preparation, because Advent looks forward not only to the celebration of Christ's birth, but also to his coming again. And immediately that brings into focus both judgment and salvation, that both are there. And I found myself thinking, why has this passage been fitted in to preparation for Christmas? I mean, it's not a very cheerful passage, is it? There's not a lot of um, 
you're looking for all the, the good news and proclamation, and there's all this uh, announcement of judgment and call to repentance. And I suspect that those who chose that passage wanted to make sure that there was something in the run-up to Christmas that targeted complacency. A reminder that Jesus is about righteousness, about right living, about radical holiness. Jesus has always been and will always be divisive. And John proclaimed Jesus as the one who would separate the wheat from the chaff. That's not all he does, because he calls people into forgiveness. He calls people into the kingdom. But ultimately, he divides people too. Now, this, this wonderful greeting, you brood of vipers, how rarely we hear that um, addressed to us. Um, Matthew, in his account, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, mentions specifically that as the crowds came, John looked up and saw many Pharisees and Sadducees amongst them, which is entirely likely because the Pharisees were a mass movement, they had many followers, many sympathizers, and I'm going to particularly pick on them in that crowd that he addressed generally as a brood of vipers, he saw many Pharisees. And if you've been brought up on the stories of the Bible, you will be accustomed to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys because Jesus was always running into conflict with them. He was always telling them off. They were always telling him off. But actually, no, at this time, in this place, as John, the prophet of God, was speaking, the Pharisees were the good guys. Let's put it in modern parlance. They were the ones who would be saying, I am really passionate about serving God. They were the people who would use the vocabulary of, we have an awesome God that we should worship in our lives, in our deeds, in our words. We should honour him in every way. They were the ones calling their neighbours to make a radical commitment to apply the word of God to their lives. They were very much the evangelicals of their day. They were a bit like us. Let's put it this way. Um, imagine that <clears throat> the media starts picking up a story that there is um, some new wild preacher emerged in Norfolk, and he's out there on the broads, preaching that Christ will come again soon, that there is not much time to get your lives in order, and to come and be baptised in one of the broads. And the media have picked it up, and crowds are beginning to gather, and this guy is really having an impact. What would this congregation do? What will you do if you go home, and you, you turn on the telly or the radio, and the local news comes on, reports are coming in, this wild Norfolk preacher with a broad Norfolk accent, wonderful. Um, down there, by the, and all these crowds are gathering. What would you do? Some of us, I suspect, would say, wow, this sounds interesting. This guy is really getting through to people. At last, somebody is speaking to our generation, getting an impact. I'm going down there to join him. And then you get in your cars and you drive off up whichever road it is and you get to this place and you see the crowds. And as, as you come towards him, he looks up and sees you and he says, you brood of vipers. Who, us? Now, I don't know what he would have said to the people who folded their arms and said, well, I've heard all this before, I'm not going. But you can worry about that yourself if you're in that category. Us? We're born-again Christians. We are Bible believers. We are Anglicans. We're the people of God. We know who we are. 
That's exactly the people that were coming to him and that he addressed in those terms. If there was a prophet of God, of John's stature, raised up out there in the broads, would he address you in that way? You see, we would respond, oh, but we're born-again Christians, we're Bible believers, whatever. And the people who came to we're children of Abraham. We believe in the promises. We're the heirs of the promise. It's exactly the same response that they had in their hearts. So it's a passage that challenges us to say, how complacent are we? Um, if you're not convinced that a man of God today would say the same thing, that was just John the Baptist. I mean, he was, he was a bit of a, you know, a sore head sort of guy. and you know, He was always in a bad mood with people. Look again at the words of Jesus. Jesus said, in that day, many will come and say, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And I will turn to them and say, I never knew you. It's a scary passage, isn't it? John the Baptist called people to repentance, to a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of behaviour. And we only have a snippet of what he addressed. And the little bit that we have there speaks into two areas. What we do with our possessions and what we do when we have power. People who carried weapons had power. People who had authority to collect taxes had power. And he said, do not abuse your power. You go through the teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples again and again. He talked about possessions and what they were going to do when they had power and authority. Major themes in the life of Jesus. You go to the big passage on communion, on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, and behind it lay, lay issues to do with inequality, with possessions, and power amongst believers. Fundamental issues. So we are warned to beware that we are not complacent, that we are the people of God, need to be the people of God in what they do and how they live. And we have a habit of creating little theological boxes that, you know, we tick this box and that box and here we are, I know I'm all right because the people who are the people of God show it by what they do. Not as a, as a, as a put-on thing, but it's that reality of having a relationship with God must affect the way we live. And if it's not coming through, something needs to be put right. Luke says that John was announcing the good news. What was the good news according to John? It would be a mistake to think it was be good, do your best, you'll be all right. That was not the gospel according to John, John, John the Baptist. Um, his good news was that God is on the move, that the Lord is coming, as you saw last week. And central to that is that this great one was going to come. So much greater than John. We know he's speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. That he will come and he will baptise you in the Holy Spirit. All the repentance, the change, that is merely getting ready for the real good news, the real action. Not about what we are going to do, but about what God is going to do. And Jesus is going to come and baptise you with the Holy Spirit. We don't need to speculate uh, or prognosticate, or whatever the word is, uh, about what he meant. 
because Luke's gospel is part one, Acts of the Apostles is the continuation, and he picks up that theme. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, On one occasion Jesus was eating with them, this is after his resurrection, and he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You, and then he goes on a verse later, you will receive power when the Holy, Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Again, in the book of Acts, chapter 11, that same thing is alluded to when Peter has been to a household of Gentiles, people who are raised in, uh, in families where they knew nothing about God, uh, where they, they were not part of the covenant people, and these people had received not only the word of God, but the power of God in their midst. And Peter says, I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. On both, both references in Acts, where he talks about how the words of John were fulfilled, it was about the power and the life of God going out beyond them to others. In the first case, to the ends of the earth. In the second case, breaking that frontier between the, the in-house believers and the, the not-yet-believers, the people that they thought were outside of their normal boundaries. <clears throat> now, some of you may be thinking, perhaps many, I don't know, oh, we had a change of subject here. We've moved on to quite a different subject. We're talking about witnessing. We're talking about the message. We're talking about transmission. And in our way of thinking, yes, it, it seems to be a different subject. Biblical way of thinking, not at all. Because when Jesus talked about being witnesses, when the Bible talks about transmission of the word of God, it is never talking about an abstract message. John called people to set their lives straight, to get their relationship right with other people because they were the people of God. And being witnesses is about being and doing all that's involved with being the people of God. It's not the transmission of an abstract message. And one of the things I've been learning over this, this last couple of years as I've been more involved in coaching young missionaries, in counselling uh, African Christians who are trying to reach their Muslim neighbours, is how important it is that the message is made flesh in us. It is no good expecting people to believe that God loves them if we are not loving them. It is hopeless to say God forgives if we are not forgiving. God did not send Jesus with a book. Jesus left a group of people who were living the word. And that has always been God's preferred method of getting the good news across. It's got to be worked out in our lifestyle. I, I speak as a Bible translator and I see more and more how important it is that the Bible is not just comprehensible, but it is understood. It is put into practice. It is lived out. And that is the most effective testimony. In Acts, Jesus talked about the Spirit coming upon you and you being witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's, there's some of us who immediately respond, ah, the world, that's somewhere far away. And we need to be reminded the world starts here. And there are other people, ah, the world, that is what is right here. 
and they can't see beyond the end of their nose. And what we need is not some happy medium, but to hold both in tension, isn't it? Because both are true. Uh, it's my privilege to be working in one of those places that is truly one of the ends of the earth, one of the last places on earth that the gospel is being announced, being lived out, is being demonstrated, and is being received, and is changing lives. And I'm involved in Bible translation, looking forward to seeing the New Testament completed fairly soon. The Word of God calls us to engage with God, with his word, with his actions, so that the world will be transformed. It's not just about making us happy, making us content, and getting us through the day, although all that is included. There is always a much bigger vision. John's call to repentance, Jesus' coming, all that he did on the cross, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all lead to this transforming of the entire human race, of the entire planet. Now here we are, it's Sunday morning, it's a couple of hours till lunch, and um, thoughts of Christmas are sort of churning away in the back of your mind. It's a bit daunting, isn't it? You know, you're being called to, to, to shake up your complacency and get real with God because you've got a role in transforming the entire world. It sounds rather a lot. If it doesn't sound daunting, you haven't really been taking it in. There is a line in John the Baptist's preaching which has been an enormous encouragement to me in these last few months. And he refers to stones. Now, I've got a couple of stones here. He says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, representing the, uh, the family that had grown up from Abraham. And he said, the, the tree can come down. But from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. You know what a stone is? Well, you do, don't you? you know what a stone is? This stone has never lived. It has no life. It will not grow. It's just... You know, things happen to it. It gets pushed along. It gets picked up. It gets eroded by water. What hope is there for a stone? And, okay, it was a rhetorical device, but it was more than that, too. He said to the, those who saw themselves as being the tree of Abraham, God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Which is an extraordinary prophetic statement. Because for those Jewish folk, our covenant people who could not believe that Gentiles would ever enjoy the privileges of knowing God, at a time when the British Isles was inhabited by a bunch of barbarians who delighted in painting themselves blue, they could not believe that God would raise up children of Abraham from the British. And all these other corners of the world that we've been referring to, with Alan bouncing his globe about, you know, as far as your average Jewish person at that, was, at that time was concerned. They were just stones. They couldn't be turned into children. And yet this was the, the word. That from these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And as we look at the challenge around us, the, 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 our immediate neighbours, the planet as a whole, the can these people enter into the fullness of the blessings promised to Abraham? And there are so many things that say no. But John says, even from stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Let us feel the, the force of the challenge of, of, of getting right and not just being complacent about who we are and where we've been. Let us also feel the force of the promise that God is about transformation.
even in the most unlikely situations, even the hardest hearts are not beyond his reach. It's been a huge encouragement to me as I have looked at uh, seemingly impossible situations. God is in the, the business of transforming every kind of person. Amen.